give everybody out there listening a very warm White Cat welcome because you're tuned in to the White Cat Outdoors podcast. What's up, everybody? Come on in, have a seat. Uh, got plenty of empty ones tonight. It's just me and Nick in here recording tonight. Yeah, it's a empty house tonight, but you do what you got to do. Yep, Tommy had some stuff he had to tend to, so he couldn't make it tonight. So it's just me and Nick, and we yeah, are going to get a guest on. Yeah, I was on. Say Luke's on second shift, so he couldn't join us either. So yeah, just everything was not working out. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, the show no, must go on. Exactly. But everybody knows tis the season. It's about planting time. So if you're thinking about putting food plots in and stuff like that, you know, you're going to want to get a jump on it. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight for the most part is just food plots, setting up properties, stuff like that for whitetail. And we got our buddy Owen Zimmer that we're going to give a call. Nick, why don't you, you, you know Owen a little bit better than I do. So Yeah, so if, uh, like Frank said, tis the season. Uh, we're going to be doing some food plot planting here pretty soon. Um, and, you know, don't just take our word for it. We're, uh, we're bringing on a professional, uh, Owen Zimmer. A legitimate professional. Yeah, exactly. It's paid for Paid it. professional. Um, Owen Zimmer, I'll let him tell you more, but basically uh, he worked with uh, Growing Deer TV for a while uh, and is now working – not sure where at, but somewhere out west. I'm sure, um, we'll find out. Too. Yeah, and he's full time managing whitetail properties and producing big bucks. So he's gonna tell us how to get it done um, and help maybe help you guys as you guys get ready to put some seed in the ground this year. So uh, without uh, stalling too much longer, let's see if we can't get him on the line. All right, hey, we got Owen Zimmer on the phone here. Uh, how you doing, Owen? Pretty good. How are you guys doing? Oh, not too bad. Uh, why don't you uh, give us a start with uh, who you are and uh, what you're, or why we brought you on here today? Well, uh, my name's Owen. I uh, come from about maybe four or five miles from where uh, Nick and Tom grew up, and I actually grew up next door neighbors with their grandpa, and I uh, just was didn't really grow up in a big hunting family or anything like that. We did hunt, but it wasn't like a major priority for us but i just was more of a working kind of kid and went off and after high school i did an internship with well went to do an internship with grant and at growing deer tv for a year and then i moved from branson missouri where their headquarters is located to over to the biggest town around is probably Okima, Oklahoma, uh, would be close by to where the farm is, and yeah. now I manage this farm down here. How did you get hooked up with the guys from Growing Deer TV? Like, did you know someone in the industry, or like, how did you get hooked up with them? I will be uh, totally honest. My senior year of high school, I had most of my stuff done class-wise, and I don't know, I can't remember when they gave us the iPads, but I want to think it was my freshman year. They gave us those iPads, and when I had everything done, I just loved to deer hunt, so I just constantly watched growing deer on my iPad mm-hmm. day in, day out, all every day in high school. And when I did that, I seen on Facebook that Grant Woods was going to be at Sparrow Pond, and I don't know if you guys know of that campground or not. In yeah, Waterford, right in Waterford, yep. yep. I was like, there's no way this big, big-name guy is coming to this wee little campground. I was like, well, mm-hmm. he's going to be there. I'd, you better believe it. I'm going to be there, too. Yeah. Just to meet the guy. And end up going there, sure enough. Showed up. It was indeed Grant. And he spoke at a game dinner there for a church. And 
met him there, explained to him I was kind of interested in an internship, and he was like, well, if you're serious, we'll uh, we'll talk about it. And sure enough, a few weeks later, I talked to Grant, and I think it was probably from the time I met him to when I was set up to go down there was about two weeks to three weeks. I was going to say, it went pretty quick. I remember my grandpa told me you were going down there, and it did seem like it all happened pretty fast. Yeah, it did. It, I think I was sometime in March, I knew, and he did the little game dinner at like the end of February, but it was it was neat to meet him uh, for the first time. That was pretty much, it was kind of like me meeting one of my idols, so to speak. Like, people look up to, like, big athletes and football players, basketball players, baseball and whatnot, but he was, like, just cool to meet him. It was a yeah, definitely. Dream. I know what you mean. So, like, what what exactly, like, did your internship entail? What exactly were you doing while you were working with him through your internship? So, my internship was a little different than, I mean, we did the same stuff, but mm-hmm. being I was coming directly out of high school, I went with a year-long internship, and Grant had only done one of those before I did mine, and that was a gentleman by the name of Tyler. And Tyler is actually currently employed for Grant and works at the headquarters doing basically the same stuff I do here in Oklahoma. But mm-hmm. our... Um, How long are the internships normally? So normally it's kids that come out of colleges that are in for conservation programs, mm-hmm. biologists, yeah, you know it, because they can... Uh, with colleges, you can get... Um, what is the word I'm trying to think of? You can get college credits okay. for doing his internship. Okay. And we do everything from invasive control. I mean, anything on. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we did. Mm-hmm. To try to name it all would take a while. Yeah. Um, we were hanging tree stands. We The interns personally weren't, but trimming lanes, fire lines, prescribed fires, which was a lot of fun. So... Um, when you're talking scribe, um, actually, that's kind of a new term for me. Um, what exactly is that scribe fire, and like, what are you guys doing with, like, what's the purpose of them? So, prescribed fire is the one thing that has been taken away from the landscape. Like, back eons ago, the fires used to rip through and just burn through, and it used to suppress certain weeds and whatnot. And that's where you used to see the big native, like the tall native grasses and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it basically, like, what well, we just opened up, like, here on the property, we opened up, I want to say it's close to everything, the, the two spots together, it's close to 50 acres worth of, we turned into an oak savanna. So there's only an oak tree every probably 25 yards or so. Mm-hmm. And so it used to be just solid timber. And with us doing that, we felled all the trees. There was actually a company came in, um, and they felled all the trees down with two big uh, machines, dropped them all, and we'll wait for that, for those trees to dry out really well. So our next chance we get to rip a fire through there, we get a good consumption of all those logs and whatnot. And It's not going to look perfect after one fire. It's going to take quite a few fires to get everything burnt down to where we like it, but eventually it'll bring back just a native grass in oak savanna and allow those oak trees that we left to really thrive because now they're not competing with trees around them. Mm-hmm. So they're going to thrive like no tomorrow. So I guess, do you guys have like a, is it like a five-year plan or something when you guys start doing projects like that? Those are just, 
we don't really have necessarily like a five-year plan with it. We look at certain areas and we'll even burn hardwoods and we'll manage different sections because for us to, at least for our situation, for us to burn everything every year, it'd be really challenging to do because fire is one of those things that's really, it's a great tool, but it's also one of them things that takes a lot of experience and it's a, I mean, it's a big risk factor. You got to know what you're doing when mm-hmm. it comes to it because you can start a forest fire real quick. And <laughs> yeah, definitely don't, don't want Smokey the Bear knocking on your door. Yeah, that is right. And <laughs> so a lot of a lot of time goes into making good quality fire lines so your fire's not jumping over, really watching it, paying attention, see what the wind's doing, mm-hmm. and the right conditions too. Um, the humidity has got to be just right. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it, but it can be very, very effective. Yeah, so do you guys do like almost like a rotation on the property for burning it like or do you just like burn an area and then you're like okay that spot's good you know for you know the next 20 years we don't need to worry about that ever again or do you kind of like move about the property and work different areas from different times no like if we like the areas we just uh felled all the trees out of and dropped them all we'll wait burn it and I mean, you guys know as much as I do about dropping a tree and cutting it up for firewood. You got to wait till it's good and dry before you can burn it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So you got to let them dry really well and get it so you can get one good burn on it and then wait. I mean, if conditions are right and you got enough new growth that came back that added enough fuel, because the big thing is being able to carry a good fire across the whole thing. Mm-hmm. If you if you light the fire and it only goes 20 yards and then hitters out and then you have to relight it, it's just going to be a really painstaking process. But if you can wait and let it grow for maybe a year or two years and you got a lot of fuel in there to mm-hmm. actually get burnt up and consume more of your actual total area that you're trying to do. Yeah. So as a reference, um, how big is the property you're managing right now? And like, how big is your crew uh, on a day-to-day basis? The property I manage is 440 acres, I believe. And my day-to-day basis consists of me, myself, and I. Oh, really? Um, so you're, you're, uh, you're for, your own foreman and grounds crew and everything for over oh, 400 yes. acres? Yep. I... Uh, is it a company that you're working for, or is it uh, like a private like landowner that uh, it's hired you on? It's a private individual um, that actually, I met him through Growing Deer, and he's actually one of the Growing Deer pro staff members. Oh, okay. And so I was able to pick up all the like tricks of the trade, you could say, from Grant in my internship. And those were the same things that he implemented and did on this farm. So you were able to he, transition into it really fast without really a learning curve going from place to yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a little bit of learning curve. I yeah, mean, there is with everywhere. And this place is a, I say it's a lot different than Branson because Branson was the Ozarks, and I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Ozarks, but yeah, mm-hmm. it is straight up and straight down. Yeah, at least we've got a little bit more flat ground, not as not as many rocks and other fun things that Branson has. Branson's a beautiful place, so I will admit that. Mm-hmm. But so, so and I'm you're, here and are you, you're doing this full time down there? Like this is taken up pretty. Like I mean, that's pretty. That's got to be almost a seven days a week kind of thing. I would imagine. It is. Uh, I work. I will 
it's kind of a my own problem, but <laughs> I enjoy it. I'm blessed to be able to do this as my job. Mm-hmm. And so I even on a Sunday or something, I don't have a lot of friends down here. So I'm not going out and helping a friend. I'll just come out here and do something. I mean, there's always something that can be done with a property. Mm-hmm. There's never like, oh, nah, that doesn't need to be done. Or there's, I mean, there's always a little thing that can be done at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, even my grandpa's got that 60-acre farm there, and we run into that problem. So you, I mean, times that by almost 10. Yeah. And, yeah, I can only imagine you're probably almost, it always probably feels like you've got not enough time in the day to get what you wanted done. Mm-hmm. It does, and it also helps the, the owner of the property is a very, very, very nice gentleman, and uh, he's one of the hardest working. Like, if I, I think I do a lot in the day, that dude, I mean – he is a very, very, very big go-getter, and he comes down on the weekends every once in a while. And like, if I did as much stuff as him, I probably wouldn't be down near as much. But he makes a lot of time for this place, and it's really nice to show that, like, my work I'm doing, he cares a lot about mm-hmm. enough to come down. And he's not the guy that just wants to, oh, drive up on the first day of rifle season or first day of archery and go hunting. I mean, Mm -hmm. that guy comes down, he comes down almost every weekend and works. If he doesn't leave early work on a Friday and come down and works with me all the way through Sunday and then goes back, it's, I mean, he's down in the summertime. It's like every weekend and throughout hunting season here, he's normally down a lot of the weekends and we, we do a lot of work in those few few days when he's down we get a lot of our bigger projects done then mm-hmm. so uh we talked to like about like burning out and doing like your uh or not burning out but um burning like some of the trees off to do those oak savannas and stuff uh do you do many like food plots in this area as well we do we've got roughly i could check the acre meter on the drill that I just finished planting today, actually, um, and I want to say we're we're right about 50 acres for the food plots. Um, um, how big are, like, obviously, I'm guessing you have more than one, you know, food plot. How big do you usually break up your food plots into, and, how, like, how far apart do you keep them on the property? So, the easiest way to describe it is you're going to have, like, feeding plots that are going to, they're not going to get over-browsed. If they get over-browsed, you've got a major deer problem, and you need to start working with your numbers but Mm -hmm. uh, you'll have your feeder feeding plots that will hold i mean those can be anywhere from like don't quote me on this but like you can get them from like three and a half to anywhere up as big as you want to go i would consider to be like a feeder plot and that's going to always have good food in there and we'll make a lot of heidi we've got quite a few heidi holes that are small like little acre from anywhere from like an eighth of an acre to like an acre little hidey holes mm-hmm. and you just like scatter those in the woods or like how do you set those up so it all kind of i mean down in your creek bottoms where you can get them where it doesn't get too wet i mean you can put them up on ridges basically just so those ones are more like a secluded type of deal yeah the way i could describe it to where at least i guess nick would be the only one that could relate to this but the one his grandfather we actually built one when i was younger back for his grandfather back in the woods 
Oh, Frank, I think Frank's hunted that. Um, it's like right on the edge of the hemlocks in the corner of the field. Yeah, across mm-hmm. the creek. Yeah, I know where it's at. Me and Tom yeah. sat there one day actually. Yeah, that place where it's just it's not a massive field, but it's a very quick, easy. The deer, I think they probably feel a little safer in there because they're two, three leaps from safety mm-hmm. if they're out in the field. They're yeah. not out in the middle of a. I mean, don't get me wrong. You'll see deer in the summertime. You'll see a bunch of bucks out in a big bean field just going to town on beans but uh those little small plots can a lot of times be the ticket to tagging a deer so what kind of um seeds and stuff what are you growing in them smaller plots i mean are you, you're not doing like beans i would imagine back in the woods like that but i didn't know if there's any uh different things from besides like your clover or brassica or something that you guys are using on those smaller hidey holes so we're actually trying this year um we work with a seed company named Eagle Seed, and they're a great company. Um, I mean, I'm not one to, like, push products or anything, but for their beans, to just talk about, we'll talk about the beans a little later, but we're using, uh, I want to say it's the top five annual clover is what it's called. It's got five different types of clover in it, and we'll use that on our really small plots. We'll just go in uh, and terminate the standing fall crop that's in there and i'll broadcast some clover in there and it'll hold up for the most part i mean a lot of honestly a lot of our uh our smaller plots aren't too far from our bigger fields so we can plant beans in there they're going to get browsed a lot heavier than and a lot worse than our bigger fields but they manage the eagle seed beans are honestly pretty amazing they they can withstand a lot of lot of browse pressure and do fairly well um in those types of situations when you have that many deer so do you guys have like some sort of uh like equation or way to figure out um like optimum uh population or is that something that you study on the properties um or i just didn't know if like how you guys are getting your numbers on yeah, or do you just like pay attention to their food, like how heavy they're hitting? Like you said, if they're over browsing, you know, then you obviously have a problem. But do you, is that something you pay attention to, or is it more like what Nick said? You just kind of observe the numbers, like literally just look at bucks and does. Well, we run quite a few cameras here, um, so it's we can look at our ratio. Come up and I think it's August is when I'll do it. There's a cert. Uh, a survey well yeah it's technically a deer survey you do the qdma puts it out and there's a whole link you can read on like the formula they use and i don't remember it off the top of my head to be honest with you there's a formula you use and it takes you look at i know it's for every hundred acres of ground you have you put out one corn pile so like in pennsylvania you can only do that in the summer times a lot of states you can't bait during season you may be able to bait at like out of season you mm. may be allowed to. There's some circumstances where CWD and whatnot is really bad. Yeah. They don't allow it at all. But at least in Pennsylvania, I know you can uh, bait out of season and you can get your look at or get a good ratio and kind of a judgment of what you have. But another great tool that a lot of people don't do that is honestly super handy you just take like a roll of, uh, I mean, I don't even know what really the name of the fencing, just like a any type of fencing, any like metal, uh, like that fencing that's got that four by four square fencing to it. And you take oh, that. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. 
Like the same stuff you use for trees around the uh, bigger trees to keep the deer from rubbing their antlers yeah. on them. Take that and make a like three foot circle and take it and just stake that down in a food plot. And what that'll do, that'll allow that food plot right there to grow and the deer won't, won't ever be able to browse on it. And then the deer will be able to browse on the whole rest of the plot and you'll see the difference in the browse pressure. And hmm. honestly, it's quite amazing to see it. The difference in when beans are getting browsed compared to when they're not, or not even beans, just plots in general. So you guys will use that to try and figure out, like, if the food plot needs to be bigger or smaller? Or, like, how is that? I guess, how are you using that information? Um, I'm using that to judge how often that plot's getting used. Okay. Because, like, if, like, say you don't, I mean, everyone's pretty much got a trail camera nowadays. But if you're wondering, like, is that food plot just not growing well? Like, what's wrong? Is my soil conditions not right? Like, is there something wrong with my soil? Well, there may be nothing wrong with your soil. Your food plot's just getting demolished every night by the deer, mm -hmm. and you never know. Yeah, it doesn't but, even have a chance to start to grow before it's getting nipped. Exactly. And with putting that little cage up, you can see, and their, their proper name for them is uh, observation cages. Mm -hmm. So you can observe the food plot and do what it should do with the soil conditions you have versus what the deer are hitting. So if you find, you know, with a food plot that maybe it is getting way over browsed, do you have any, like, tips or anything to, like, try and keep the browsing down? Like, do you ever, like, fence off a food plot? Or, like, how would you restrict so much browsing on an area? Or is that just, like, strictly deer management? You just got to get your numbers down. I mean, if you've got the... If you've got the only food in the neighborhood, so to speak, and they're the only deer like they're just crushing it then you gotta weigh out do you have the funds to put more food in to feed them because like i want to say grant grant's got a formula and i want to say your property should have about 10 percent, 10 or 11 percent food for what your total acre is worth so we're right at about 12 percent, i think it is now, does that number change like depending on what you have on your property, like if you have cricks running through it or if you know you have a swamp or whatever, would you adjust that number depending or is that pretty much just like universal no matter how your property's set up? I look at it as more of just like a, a standard. Just, that's kind of a baseline to shoot for. Mm -hmm. So would uh, that uh, include like, say like apples or like oak trees and stuff? Or are you talking uh, your food plots, like the ones you're actually planting year to year should be at that like 10%. I would personally, I would consider that to be like my, my food plots I'm planting. Okay. Now, if I did like a, like an apple orchard or something, we don't personally have any fruit trees here. That'd be kind of a neat thing to do. Cause don't get me wrong. I've seen a lot of deer. I mean, I've got like one apple tree behind the house, uh, back home that I used to see deer at all the time. And I used to thought, man, I want to make a big old apple orchard and I'm going to kill all the deer in the world. <laughs> but obviously that's not, not always the case. Mm-hmm. So like after like, I guess once you're, um, you've got like each, like your idea, like how much you guys want to plant, um, is there any sort of like, like, how are you guys laying out a property? Like, do you guys go in and is it like natural fields or are you guys cutting, uh, trees away to put these food plots in? Uh, and like, I guess like when you look at the map of like the entire property, how are you guys laying, um, everything out to, to like try and like optimize like where they're at, I guess. So 
typically kind of a loaded want, question, but <laughs> uh, typically you want to look at it, and you don't want as least as possible east and west is kind of a bad because you're when you plant east to west, the sun will evaporate more of the water that's hitting the ground for your food plot rather than uh, north to south. So, like, so, are, so you're saying like as bit. like if you're putting in like a rectangle food plot i guess is the easiest way to describe it you want it yeah. running more of a north and south um if you can get it i mean if you can't get it a per if you can't get it at all out of north and south it's better to have food than not have food it's yeah of course may mm. not grow near as well hmm. um so the guy you're working for he does like let you kind of go in and like create these food plots like if they're out in the woods so we've when I, I'm trying to think, since I started here, I started here last September, um, right before season actually started, and I think we've added about cleaning up the two. He had two fields originally that he had let go just from, that was the main reason I had gotten hired, was just he couldn't find enough time to do everything that was needed to come to get done down here. He couldn't find enough time to be here, so... I think with what I've done, we've created about another 10 acres roughly, but like probably four and a half of those acres, we actually, I just finished planting them for a dove food plot. So it's kind of, I mean, it's the deer are going to be out in there. I don't doubt mm -hmm. it, but it's not solely for the deer. We're also doing it for mm -hmm. the dove too. But um, we, we made a few. We didn't, I mean, he has quite a few already. So it wasn't like we really needed to push for food. Our bigger push was our bedding areas, and that's what we did a lot of. I was just about to ask, you said something about he had, like, some grown-up fields and stuff that he hadn't tended to because he just didn't have time. Do you guys lean more towards, you know, like, fields like that, if it's just, like, tall goldenrods or whatever that the deer used to bed in? Do you typically leave fields like that alone for bedding, or would you turn some of it into a food plot? How do you go about that sort of field setup. So I feel kind of bad saying this, but I listen to the podcast pretty much every Monday while I'm working. And the guy had said in the last one, had said the South facing slopes, which he didn't find it's many sheds and whatnot. Mm -hmm. All of our bedding areas, we stick to a South facing slope. Okay. They may not. I mean, I mean, we're down here in Oklahoma. Like yeah, the, the geography definitely changes that. I would say. Yeah. Yeah, and we're not. We don't get near as cold. But mm -hmm. if if it was me, if I could sit in a spot, even though it's only forty degrees, if I could sit in a spot where I'm going to be maybe a few degrees warmer, I'm going to take the hundred yard walk and go sit and lay down there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rather than sit and lay somewhere a little bit colder. Yeah. But that's just a morally a matter of opinion um i didn't want to i knew i was gonna have to that was gonna get brought up at some point <laughs> oh no I mean, that's everybody's got their own opinions and people do different things uh that they find successful so i mean we're not opposed to hearing different like mm -hmm. uh, i guess um clashing opinions because it, the whole idea of it's to bring everybody in on it and people can kind of take what they want from it yeah the more Hopefully. viewpoints you have the more you know information you have to pull your ideas from you know you can figure it out on your own but i mean obviously like nick said geography and you know the where you're at in the country like you're in oklahoma we're in pennsylvania you know 
there is obviously going to be some disparity in what you do and what we do. You know, it might work for you there perfectly, but it might, you know, we might find some hangups over here just for whatever reason being, you know, the topography or the different trees or whatever it may be, you know, it just might be a little bit different. And uh, I think a big thing too is like compared to from down here to up there, I mean, don't get me wrong, I have been fortunate enough to hunt on a really, really nice uh, property in Pennsylvania where they own a good hunk of land, but even theirs, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, people have some 400-acre pieces in Pennsylvania, but down here, that's not uncommon. Like, Yeah, no, I definitely know what you mean. Around here, you know, most, yeah, most people have 10 acres or less, and, you know, the farmers have, you know, 50 to 100 sometimes a couple hundred but it is very mm-hmm. uncommon to find a 400 acre piece that's uninterrupted yeah that's a solid farm i mean just a solid piece of land it's not not normal like back home i grew up hunting i want to say my with my grandparents included it was like 21 acres it yeah like, it was awesome for me we had some ag and whatnot but you just you don't see that mass amount of land that's all continuous mm-hmm. or contiguous is the proper name so what kind of i guess i mean you've hunted pennsylvania most of your life and now you're down there um what class of deer i guess are you guys shooting for when you're when this guy's putting all this money and time into like getting you to make this property like a whitetail heaven uh what is i guess what's his target animal on that kind of property so it doesn't really matter what our goal is like we have a goal but we don't look at it as like how much time we're investing and how big the deer should get we look at it as morally like all right what of our what of our uh, what are our neighbors taking and what are other people around us going to be harvesting and what what do we see as like a max potential of antler that mm-hmm. they can grow yeah so we shoot for anything four years old four years or older okay. and last year i believe the buck we harvested uh unfortunately i didn't get at age which i wish i would have i think he was four he was kind of on the borderline but i think he was four just because the pictures i'd had of him beforehand i like i had no doubt in my mind he was four and i get on him and it was the rut and he was just i mean he looked like he was down and out just bad Mm -hmm. and he like made me think he was three when we got up on him oh really and i was like that just doesn't make sense i mean i've seen in you can judge a deer by a trail camera picture fairly well. I mean, especially when you get the mass amount of pictures that I have of these deer, you can get a good, I mean, you get every angle you want. Like, mm-hmm. No doubt about that. Um, but I believe that one was four. And then we think the other one was possibly six or seven. He was an older deer. Wow. They had had pictures of him. If it's the same deer, I mean, we don't have collars on him. We can't tell for sure. But just going off the antlers and looking at the yeah, and you deer. can get a pretty good idea from year to year antlers. You know, they they keep the basic shape to them. Mm-hmm. They may add a few kickers here and there, but they're going to be relatively similar. And you can also look at like, okay, there was a massive ten point running around in this section of the place at this time of the year. Pretty good chance if another deer shows up, that's a eleven point same frame and whatnot just a random kicker and he's in that same area at the same time of the year probably a good chance it's probably the same deer yeah you're right so and they they seen him the seven buck the seven year old deer that got shot last year they think he had disappeared for two years because they had 
pictures of them and they had footage of them before and they had no pictures of him for the last two years and he just randomly showed back up and his brother-in-law was pretty certain that it was him and i think it was him too by the pictures mm-hmm. so, so you guys are looking more for age than antler size i mean obviously you don't want to shoot a really small buck but you're looking more for a mature age deer rather than the monster rack or if it is a monster rack on a younger deer you're probably going to let it go yeah um especially because i mean we have a i mean we're i mean everywhere's kind of got hunting pressure we don't have like a we're not michigan or pennsylvania where i call it the orange armies out and about yeah it's not necessarily that much pressure but we still do have people around us that hunt and people around us had a very good year i mean i at least know of two good deer i at least i would say 140 inch seven point wow it was a seven point it was a stud i think i may have sent a picture to nick i'll have to send it to you guys guy was a very lucky guy he ended up he was sitting 100 uh, 150 yards off our property and two little bucks were starting to fight big boy just came running in and ended up getting him in archery yeah, that's insane 140 inch seven point my biggest bucks like 145 inch 10 and i couldn't imagine taking three points off of that thing and still getting it to 140 <laughs> yeah he was i mean he just had mass like no tomorrow he was a really cool deer mm-hmm. and so, uh, i say 140 that's what i personally think it looked like from mm-hmm. the eye cause, i mean he was just yeah i mean you stare at pictures picture. of bucks all year round though so i yeah you I, got I a pretty good eye at this point <laughs> uh just based off of all the trail camera pictures I had of him, and I thought we were going to end up killing him within like the next few days because he was starting to get really active and really close to daylight. And sure enough, it was like three days later, and mm-hmm. my boss sent me a picture. He's like, "Hey, look what the neighbor sent me." I was like, "Man, that kind of brings a tear to my eye." To be honest, because he was a—I mean, although he was just a seven point, like everyone looks at him, oh, it's a seven point. But I don't care on the matter of points. I'm looking for how big their bodies are. I mean, their front shoulders. Mm-hmm. I mean, where's their neck meet? like and how much mass do they carry because we've got a lot of like 120 inch eight points that we give them if things go the way i'm hoping with our good germination we've had so far with our beans and the plots if we can crank on if we could get 20 inches of antler added this year that'd Mm -hmm. be awesome heck yeah so you know you talked like you got tons of trail cameras out there and stuff and obviously you do a lot of studying with that um like so during the season um is that kind of like your main uh, job like day to day is like studying those cameras and pretty much trying to tell that uh, your boss like what the optimum stands to be in like I guess what's your you're, like patterning and stuff yeah like and obviously like you're planting food plots and doing different things on the property but like during the season uh, what's your job there so during the season um, it's really me watching hey like I think there's a good chance like been watching this deer he's been moving through here and here hey i think i was like we don't have a stand here like i'll run out throw up a set and get two stands up in the tree and hey conditions look favorable for that new set i put up the other day let's try to slip in there so like on x day and see if we can have any luck um in running cameras and that's pretty much my job is during season is just mainly watching them cameras making really last minute moves on tree stands and stuff and moving around like if we think we've got a good chance and we have an idea like him hey, maybe he's moving through there throw a camera down there and see what we see if we pick him up run in hang a stand up get in get out quick and 
not don't make a bunch of disturbance i'm not gonna cut a nice walking trail in i'll clear a little lane so we're not making a bunch of noise coming in but not nearly what i do when like we've got a few stand like quite a few stands already out i'll go throughout in like july august and trim nice trails to them go up check all the straps and check all the safety lines and get everything done beforehand but and we don't have as nice of access when you're doing it on the fly like that but sometimes that's what it takes to i mean you guys hunting out of climbers and stuff you just go and you walk quiet enough into the woods and really pay attention you'll You'll see a lot more things if you walk with your head up rather than watching your feet when you walk. That's a big thing. Yeah, that's definitely a big thing that, you know, I have talked with, you know, me and Nick have gotten a couple people into hunting and stuff. And that's a big thing is what most people do when they're just getting into the outdoors. When they're walking through the woods, they're staring at their feet and nothing's happening down at your feet. Everything's up ahead of you a hundred yards. So your eyes better be up. Watching, because I don't know how many times I've, like when I was younger, just, got my bow in hand i'm trucking into the woods and looking down all i hear is and i look up and there's a deer taking off it's like man he was only about 20 yards away when i first saw him so maybe if i would have been walking my head up he was probably looking at me for about two minutes while i was walking towards him yeah exactly so you said like you're checking cameras probably it sounds like almost like daily are you guys running cell cameras because i doubt you're like in the woods you know checking these cameras every day yeah we've got uh we've got a fair amount of cell cameras out um that we monitor through and get pictures sent back to us which those are nice um but you can only get them in certain areas i mean you got to have reasonable signal for them to want to transmit mm-hmm. uh, back to your phone but some of them spots that like um a little bit harder more secluded areas that i'm like sticking a camera in i won't check it um every single day i'll give it a few days sneak in there like after i know like yeah maybe the conditions were favorable for what i want to do down there if i want to hang a stand on the east side of it or whatever we don't normally get winds uh out of the east so a lot of times i'll stick them on the eastern side and hope for like a westerly wind and whatnot so i'll kind of have an idea of already how i want to hunt and approach that area and i'll do the same thing when i'm putting that camera up and scouting it that way i'm not really alerting as many deer as I would be if I was doing it opposite of that. Gotcha. Another thing uh, that I thought of when you were talking about, um, you know, setting your stands up, um, and you had mentioned that you're putting two stands up, are you also filming for this guy as well? Yeah, we film uh, all of our hunts uh, that gets sent to, we don't do any of the editing and whatnot. We just film everything, and then they get sent to Branson to Growing Deer's headquarters. Okay, so like, uh, do you are any of your videos out um, through Growing Deer, or I get like, because I'm assuming you're the photographer, videographer for these guys. Uh, there was both the bucks last year uh, made it into an episode for Growing Deer, um, and I filmed back when I was an intern. I filmed Daniel. Um, I say Daniel. No one's gonna know who Daniel is, but Daniel <laughs> is one of Grant's. Um, Grant Woods is the owner and operator of Growing Deer TV and Woods and Associates um, Consulting. And Daniel's one of his, I would say, employees, high man on the totem pole. He's his content manager, and I filmed him kill a a buck in archery when I was an intern. That was a lot of fun because Daniel's a very good hunter, and the one deer I think I spotted before him ended up being the buck he shot. (laughs) So that 
that little memory will never leave my mind. I'll let, never let that one down. So when you're setting up these stands um, for like filming, uh, like we're just getting into filming hunts this year. Um, and I was just, I want to pick your brain a little bit on like if you're set obviously it's one thing to set up for one guy but if you're trying to get two guys set up um like how are you putting that second there that second stand in there to make it like optimal for filming but like not going to get in his way so the cameraman's always up cameraman always takes a pretty good hop up from the hunter stand to the to his stand but normally i like it to where the camera is on my left side in between me and the hunter so are you always in the same tree as him just up higher or do you like sometimes go a tree or two apart no normally i mean we may be on a different limb like if we get in a real big tree down here it's really with our oaks it's really i mean you pick a tree it's a tree for a reason like okay it's got a good solid tree and it's not really twisted or anything like that because I mean, back home, you can walk into the woods and hang a stand in pretty much any tree that's out there. Mm-hmm. Down here, we got to be a lot more a lot more okay with some twisted limbs and stuff like that to be able to get stands in certain trees. Mm-hmm. But we normally try to stick to a few feet above. Basically, the way I look at it is like my bottom of my platform of the summit stand is like, I would say when the hunter's sitting down, it's at about their head. Okay. And I want to say he's like a, he's a taller gentleman uh, that I normally hunt with. So I would guess maybe three feet, maybe three, four feet above where the hunter is. And sometimes you'll throw a quick step in like a, in between where your hunter and your cameraman is. So your cameraman can not only just go from like the tree stand to his tree dirt from his tree stand to the other one that's hanging on the side, put a little quick step there. So they've got a ladder and it's a little bit easier and a little bit safer to get up into. Gotcha. So is, uh, you said you wanted to be on his right side, but like the camera in between you. So if you're going up the tree, like theoretically you're going up the tree um, depending on like if you're hunting out of a ladder stand or two hang on stands, we've majority of ours are hang on stands. Um, so if it's a hang on stand, like most of ours, you'll go up basically like roughly, I think like the thing is 90 degrees from where you're at is your hunter's stand. If it's on the right or left, whatever, and you'll get up in that. And then if you're in the hunter's stand, you're looking out like straight out to be to his right in up the tree three feet is where i put my stand so that way majority of our hunts are going to be off to either to our right or his left like i don't know like 180 degrees roughly like yeah. the one side of the tree so if i put the camera in between me and him i'm like right over the shoulder that's kind of like a go-to shot is if you can kind of capture the hunter in full draw this is mainly for archery if you can capture him in draw but you also have the buck or the doe whatever you're hunting in focus but then you got him there and you can see kind of him and the deer at the same time that's a really cool shot to go for but it's a really tough one to get but with archery you can sometimes manage to get it so when you guys are filming is it i guess what's like the highest on your priority list um with this area like is it or with this guy is it 
you know, like actually getting the buck down or are you guys more focused on making sure that you get like optimum footage of the hunt? Really what we do, we, I mean, a lot of shows and different things, they'll like kind of remake. The big thing with growing deer is everything is true, honest hunt. So like we won't go back and remake any footage. Like we don't just go up in the tree and then I just sit there and twiddle my thumbs until the deer walks out. We shoot it and then we remake all no literally what we do is we get up in there and as he's climbing up the tree i've always got i normally take two gopros with me and i'll be filming him yank up his bow up the tree i mean all the pre-roll and b-roll that we collect of him knocking an arrow things like that and just doing everything a normal hunter does when they're getting in, set up into the tree and then i'll take my bigger camera the I want to say it's, I can't remember, it's a Sony 90-something, PXW or something. Uh, It's more of a camcorder-style camera, and I'll film some B-roll stuff with some leaves, different things, just in and out of the tree. But when it comes down to it, you're really, you want to get a good frame, but you also want to be, I mean, you want to be in focus. Number one thing is whether or not you may not have the deer in the perfect angle, but as long as it's in focus, that's the best part, I mean. If the deer is blurry, the hunt's kind of pointless. Yeah. So how do you communicate with uh, your guy? Um, like it, you know, game time bucks out there. Um, it, I mean, does he just trust that you're at this point can make sure the shot's there or is there, you know, like that, is there any kind of communication right before he's releasing? Oh, there is. Um, the nice part is with the cameras we run and most cameras out there, you've got a, shotgun mic which picks up just your overall sound just random and then you got a mic for the hunter and so that mic for the hunter i when i have my headphones one headphone is for the hunter and one for is just for like the surrounding noises going on birds chirping whatever and i can hear the hunter clear as day like he's basically not screaming at me in my ear but like if he was having a normal conversation but yet he's at a real low whisper like are you on them? Are you on them? And I can, I've got a bad issue because I don't want to ever scare the deer. Like if I'm the reason that deer takes off, I'd feel terrible. (laughs) Uh, So I've got a real bad issue with talking really low when it comes down to those times. But uh, we, I mean, we just talk at a real low whisper. At least I do. And he talks at a real low whisper, but it comes to me as like, he's just talking normal because I've got him in my ear. That's pretty cool. I didn't realize that there was even that kind of technology out there to, make that kind of thing happen yeah it's just two separate mics um one mic just goes he just sticks it in his pocket and he puts like if you ever see on some shows you'll see a little fuzzball thing that's mm-hmm. sticking on someone's shirt that's a little mic and it's picking it up oh okay yeah that's what's given the feedback between the hunter and the camera and one of those when you put your headphones in for filming and whatnot one of the mics is your hunter's mic and one of them is the shotgun mic that just picks up your i don't know what you'd want to call it i'm not a very techie guy when it comes to it but (laughs) you know how it works and that's about it (laughs) (laughs) don't need to know what it's called or how it works just know that it does and know how to use it yep that's it so uh are you recording like the entire time or like i guess like is it hard for you to like hear what's actually going on um with like you know headphones on and everything or like how is how does that work for you I'll tell you what, if you've got, I normally, so his brother-in-law, we have two cameras, two main cameras. Um, 
there. One's just a little newer than the other. But if his brother-in-law is not hunting, this like not out at the farm hunting with us, I'll take all the batteries with me, and I'll turn that camera on because that shotgun mic, I can hear a church mouse running through the woods hmm. with that shotgun mic. So I'll put the shotgun mic in, and I'll just turn the camera on. But you got to be cautious of this because it's fooled me a few times. That shotgun mic, whichever way your camera's pointing, like I can be looking a different direction, have the camera pointing opposite or different than me, and you'll hear a deer coming. But then you'll think it's coming from over here, and you'll look around, and really it's right over there. It's to the opposite direction. So as long as you know where your camera's pointing and you have your one shotgun mic in your ear, you can pick off deer a long ways before they're going to see you or hear you. So you just don't have the depth perception and the direction of hearing when it's through the mic, but you can hear it from a lot farther away. You just then have to decipher where it's coming from. Yeah, you can, like if your camera's sitting straight pointed out from you and you can hear that noise. And it's also a little tricky because you only hear it in like one ear because one earpiece is one and one is the other. Mm -hmm. And so you'll hear that noise. Then you're like, oh, there's a deer. And then you got to look at the way your shotgun mic's pointed. And that'll tell you which way the deer's coming from hmm. and where it's kind of picking it up from. Because I've looked around, I look at my noise. I think it's, it normally comes in my left ear as a shotgun mic. And I'll be staring to the left and I'll be looking for this deer. I'll be like, man, it's over there somewhere. Because I think that's coming from that direction. But really, it's picking up from the mic and not just mm-hmm. my normal hearing. So yeah. it'll get you sometimes, that's for sure. Yes, I'm sure that takes a little bit of practice or training for yourself, just trying to remember that it's Remember over. that there is a <laughs> microphone in your ear. Yeah. It's helpful, though, I will admit, like, when you're out there. I mean, they make, um, I want to say they're called wild ears. And for people who don't have the best of hearing or have lost it due to whatever, they're a really great option. I don't. I mean, some people, I know your grandpa, uh, Tom, not Tom, Nick, has uh, those power walks, I think is what he calls them. Yeah. Wears them around when he's turkey hunting. Basically, they're really sim- similar to those, but they're more like earpieces. Mm-hmm. Basically, take your glorified AirPods that are out nowadays, <laughs> and they're for hunting, and they pick up sound and transmit it back to you really nicely. Yeah, he, he uses it. They look more like earmuffs um, mm-hmm. when he's out there. Because, I mean, I, I know you've uh, done some hunting with my grandpa over the years, too, and he can't hear a whole lot of anything, so it's <laughs> almost a necessity for him to have something like that. Um, I would say the the few hunts I've gone on with your grandpa, the I mean the one successful one is probably dang near my favorite hunt I've ever gone on. Or is that your uh, your big gobbler you got with him? Yep, I will never forget that day. I I don't know how many times I tell that story. Well, I mean, we've got the time. I know we're we're at about fifty minutes or so. Um, I've never I'm, heard the story, I, so I'd love to I hear. I guess what I'm getting at is if you've got the time, I'd love to hear the full story because I know I've gotten bits and pieces from you and from my grandpa. But if you've got the time, I'd love to hear the full rundown of that day then. Yeah, I got I got nothing really going on. I got most of the things wrapped up here. So uh, we – forget when it was. It was a few weeks before youth turkey season in Pennsylvania, and your grandpa had come over, and he's like, hey, you want to go out on a turkey hunt? And – like I said before, my family didn't grow up, like, we hunted, but we weren't, like, diehard hunters. We didn't really do a whole bunch with it. And I was like, heck yeah, man. I was like, I'd love to go. And so he brings me over. We shot the gun in his, uh, in the back pole barn. And I actually, that thing got me, scoped myself so bad with that gun. He hooked you up at the Thompson Center, that single shot? 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. That it's, yeah, I also have bit my eyebrows with that gun. So. Yeah, it was. It got me pretty good, and I, your uh, uncle was actually there, uh, Kevin. Yeah. And he's like, hey, better hope that don't happen when the turkey's in front of you. I was like, yeah, I hope so. As long as I hit it, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, it'll be worth it then. Oh, yeah. And so we went out and we started. We were hunting just right behind. Um, started down the road from your grandfather's house a little ways. And we would went out, heard some gobbles, and we had done our moving around. And we... I mean, when we first sat down, we sat there for a good hour, hour and a half, and just nothing really would come in. We moved around. We went back closer to his house, a few gobbles, this and that. We seen a coyote and couldn't get a shot at that because it was a wee bit too far for the 12-gauge. Uh, it was like 300 yards away, and as much as I just wanted a to wee bit hunt, too far. Rip. <laughs> uh, I wish I would have been able to pull the trigger, but it's just a wee bit outside the yeah. effective range for that gun. and. <laughs> We finally were like basically giving up. We were planning on going and crossing the road and trying another spot. And we heard one and we snuck up and we sat down. And we're like, yeah, I think we can get closer. So we got a little closer. We ended up sitting right next to, I think your grandpa was sitting, leaning up against it, but I could be wrong. And I was sitting about two feet away from it. It was this old baby blue. Uh, it was so old, I believe it was an international pickup truck. <laughs> And, I mean, it was just back in the woods. It had an old Steve's welding, and I don't know who that is or what it is, but we're sitting right next to this baby blue pickup truck, and this turkey came in strutting, and, I mean, it was so much fun. I mean, it took maybe all of 10 minutes, but it was, like, one of the most memorable 10 minutes of my life, that's for sure. That's awesome. It was a blast. First turkey I had ever killed, actually, and ended up it was funny when we were walking out he's like hey you owe me five dollars i was like <laughs> i was a young kid i figured you know five dollars for the uh guide fee yeah you know, not even for the guide fee for the shells i used yeah I shot three times with the gun twice practices and one at the bird and i was like well, all right whatever it doesn't bother me man i was like i just pumped to have be able to have my first turkey and he goes now i energy in a uh in a turkey pool and sure enough i end up winning it that year <laughs> uh, that I it was a lot of fun. I'll definitely never forget. That's for sure. Yeah, that actually you beat me and Tom that year in the turkey pool. I remember that was a it was a fun year. Um, yeah, it was. I, it was a big bird too. I don't remember the exact measures of the beard, but it was a pretty good bird. I remember. Yeah, it was a while ago. I want to say it was like, I think Maddie was the runner up that year. She had went and shot like hers was like seven inch beard or something like that and mine was like nine but she had longer spurs or something i don't honestly remember at all but i was just happy to get a turkey i wasn't Heck really yeah. too worried about the money i was morally worried just about <laughs> having fun it started a addiction for me that's for sure turkey hunting as much as i don't do it much as i'd like to but it's always fun when i go out it's always a blast Mm-hmm. yeah it's he's pretty good turkey caller he's gotten me a couple birds over the years Oh, let me tell you what, if I could have that man with me in the woods turkey hunting any every day I went out, I would pay that man to come out and call for me. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but yeah, he's five bucks a bird. That's the going rate. Yeah. But I'll give him tough to make money on five that. bucks a bird. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you did say that uh, you tune into the podcast on Mondays, um, so I'm sure you know about what we're getting to here. Um, 
we said um, at the end of all of our podcasts, when we bring a guest on. We like to do the write it in pen. Uh, I don't think I need to explain it for you. Um, basically, just uh, what you uh, maybe what you've something you've learned there, or just something you kind of live by uh, to share with everybody that tunes in with you throughout the week. It necessarily isn't a thing to live by, but it's something to hunt by. I would say when you're hunting and you're like managing a property and whatnot, don't necessarily look at like, oh, how big of a food plot can I put in or how big of a bedding area. Look what you have and look what your neighbors have and look what they are missing that you can put in that's going to make those deer want to spend more time on your place than theirs. And the biggest thing is like everyone knows 90% of the time when deer up and at least in daylight hours, they're in their bedding areas. Mm. That's where they, I mean, don't get me wrong. They come out at last light and whatnot in food plots, but that's where they spend most of their time. So just really stick to figuring out what other people don't have and what you can add to yours to make your property and your place you hunt more attractive. I think that's a really great point. I think that's definitely like one of the biggest things that people overlook is what is around them. They look at their property, you know, they get tunnel vision on what they can do to their property, but they don't expand their vision enough to see that, you know, a lot of the stuff that you want to put on your property is a hundred yards away on your neighbor's property. So you do not need it. It's just going to be a waste of your time. Well, not necessarily a waste, but you don't need to do it because it's already right there. And I am the biggest person to blame for that because when I was getting into hunting, I was like, man, I got to put in food plots. That's how I'm going to kill deer. Well, silly me didn't look at my neighbors who had all the food in the world for deer. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that my little clover plot is going to be the reason they want to come over rather than go to their nice bean field and clover field your grandpa has. Like your grandpa's got a beautiful property and beautiful food for the deer. There's no reason in the world they'd want to come over there for just my little bit of clover yeah mm-hmm. not food but like you said maybe work on putting bedding together because that's one thing my grandpa's mm-hmm. property lacks mm-hmm. it's just Which, finding out you... what other people don't have that you can have yeah well, i appreciate it owen uh this is a really good podcast here i really enjoyed this one um i feel like there's a lot i learned out of this um yeah, I definitely, I was really excited to have you on because I, you know, we haven't, I haven't talked to you in a long time. I saw you at the Harrisburg show for like 10 minutes. You came up to the booth and talked to me for a few minutes, but you know, I have, I've never really gotten a rundown of like what exactly you've been doing. And I was really excited to hear about all the stuff that you've done since, you know, you got out of high school and all the different things you've been doing with, you know, in the hunting industry. Yeah, I am. I'm really blessed to be able to do what I do. That's for sure. I'm very thankful for it and i enjoy it and it's not a lot of people can say they get to wake up and actually enjoy going to work every single day and there's not a day that i come out here that i've got a frowny face on other than when it's raining and i gotta get cooped up in the shop but it's always a good time to catch up on things you don't normally get done Mm-hmm. oh good deal thank you again owen uh yep thank sure you we'll, guys for we'll talking to you again um maybe get an update on how the property's going um but hopefully some people can pull some of the information you used and maybe a apply it to their own property so appreciate it man yeah for sure you guys uh take care and good luck this season yeah thanks a lot owen see you later buddy yep yep later guys yep bye Bye. all right everybody 
I uh, hope you guys enjoyed podcast with Owen. Uh, he's a really good dude. Like I said, we grew up just up the road from him, uh, and he moved on to bigger and better things, chasing bigger whitetail. And we're still um, stuck here talking with you people. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> But, yeah, so uh, Owen's got a whole wealth of knowledge on setting up property, as you can see. Um, and, you know, not everything that he said is, ex- like, a very expensive thing to do. Uh, like he said, pay attention to what your neighbors have. Uh, and if you've got the opportunity to – change up the property you're on um take advantage of it and take a few notes uh from what owen had to say and apply them on your own property but uh that about sums it up for this week and um like you said while you're out there applying owen stuff you obviously you gotta get outside <laughs>